So I want to start off today talking about a place not far from here. I want to talk about downtown Portland. And downtown Portland, I don't know if you noticed, but there are two skyscrapers, two of them, kind of a pinkish salmon-colored one and a white one. And if you've lived in Portland or the Portland area your whole life, you know that those are the two big buildings. You kind of look for those as you go into the downtown. I remember in high school, junior high, talking with some of my friends about which one is taller and which one is it? Is it that kind of salmon-colored one or is it the white one that you see in the foreground of your picture up here? That picture's up there, yes. Actually, it's the white one. Sorry, Jason. Uh, it, the white one, according to the internet, is 10 feet taller. Um, so basically, it's, it's a tie. The Portland skyscrapers are a whopping 546 feet and 536 feet. The white one is the Wells Fargo Tower. It is our skyscraper. 546 feet is a pretty good, good size. It's almost two football fields on end, right? However, if you've gotten out of the Portland area and visited other cities, you know that our skyscrapers aren't really that impressive. So I want to take you to New York City. New York City has this building, the Empire State Building, which actually was the world's tallest building for about 40 years, 39 years and seven months. It was the tallest building. It is 1,250 feet tall. So to kind of understand that, you would have to take the Wells Fargo building, put it on top of itself, and then take another third to reach the top. So next time you're driving into Portland and your eyes spy the white, which is tallest, Jason, the white building, you go, okay, I'm going to imagine that now double and then another third. That's the Empire State Building. Pretty impressive. But if you know anything about your buildings, you know that the Empire State Building is small potatoes now. As a matter of fact, there's another building. This building is found in Dubai. It's called the Burj Khalifa. The Burj Khalifa, you can go as high as you can go in this building is the 154th floor. 154th floor. You get to the top of this building and you look down and the buildings are tiny. So if you go downtown and you do the Wells Fargo building and you stand up there and you look down and you see people, right? They're so small. You go to the top of the Burj Khalifa, it's not the people that look small because you can't see them. It's the buildings that look small. What's really interesting is the Burj Khalifa, which is 2,710 feet tall. That's almost half a mile tall. It is so tall that all these buildings that you see around it here, the four tallest buildings in Dubai are all taller than the Empire State Building. And yet look at how small it looks compared to that building. You go to the top of the Burj Khalifa. It's impressive. Our, our skyscrapers, we're going to need six of our skyscrapers to reach the top of the Burj Khalifa. One author said, once you got inside, you looked down, you scanned the city, and you realized how small those buildings look. Those are the buildings that if you went to any other city, you would say, wow, look how tall those buildings are. But here in Dubai, blah, eh, they're kind of unimpressive. 
Today, our psalm is talking about the most impressive thing in the universe, and that is God in his holiness. It's one of those things that, honestly, it's like, it's, it, it's, it should be the thing that impresses us. I don't know about you, but if I was in Dubai, I would try to catch every glimpse I could of the Burj Khalifa. I'm pointing back there because there's a picture back there. I'm not saying it's that direction, okay? It's up here for you all. But I would be, you'd, you'd cut, you'd, your eyes would find it. How long would it take for you to live in Dubai before seeing the Burj Khalifa became ordinary? I don't know if it ever would for me. I don't know if it ever would for you. But unfortunately, what happens with us is we get these glimpses of God's holiness, and then we go on to the little things of the earth. Can you imagine the Burj Dubai standing right there, and you are playing with something on the ground and going, look how big what I made is. Look at this awesome thing. Or if you're in your two-story house and you're going, we got such a giant house. But by comparison, it's tiny. It's quite puny. See, we don't always live with God's skyscraper holiness in view. We don't always look at everything else in life from the correct perspective. Instead, we start looking at the things in this life and we forget the holiness of God. We forget that it should be drawing our attention. So today's psalm, the psalmist is trying to draw us back to that. And so today our focus is going to be that God is holy, and yet he makes a way for us to have a relationship with him, which doesn't seem like that big of a deal for our American Western culture, because we think we're pretty awesome. We think God's pretty lucky to have us, but when we see God in his holiness, we realize we are the exact opposite. We are so far from him. As a matter of fact, the Burj Khalifa is not tall enough to compare how great God is to how infinitesimal we are. We would need to be a flea on the ground at the foot of the Burj Khalifa, and even that isn't big enough. So when we speak of holiness of God, it's one of those words, right? We throw it around, holy this, holy that, the holy Bible. If you're, if you're familiar with the old Batman cartoon, it's holy whatever that Robin would always say, holy rusted metal, right? Whatever Robin would say. And it would be a, a kind of a, a play on words. But for God, it's not a play on words. And what's interesting, in the Bible, it says, holy, holy, holy. We sang that just a few minutes ago. Nowhere else in the Bible does it repeat three words describing God. It doesn't say love, love, love. It doesn't say just, 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 kind, kind, kind. It doesn't do that. And the reason for that is because the word holy is actually a summary of all that God is. It is the perfect word to apply to God. So ironically, it shouldn't apply to anything on this earth other than God. Spurgeon writes, holiness is the harmony of all virtues. The Lord has not one glorious attribute alone or in excess, but all the glories as a whole. This is the crown of his honor and the honor of his crown. His power is not his choice's jewel, nor his sovereignty, but it is his holiness. This is what makes God different from us, distinct from us. But praise be to God that this God that is distinct from us is not disinterested, and he's not distant. He's here. So this is where we have a problem. See, we approach holiness of God as something we can just kind of, eh, God's holy. Yeah, that's good. 
We like that God does things for us. We like to have God in a way that we can use him in a way that fits with what we need and then call him when we need him. Break glass in case of emergency to get God's attention. Instead of seeing, instead of seeing God as useful, we're see, we need to see God as the standard of all goodness. That holiness is what dis- defines him. And when we see holiness right, we're going to see the responses that come. And we've already sung some of these. We see people trembling. We see the earth quaking. We see people exalting in God. If there's a problem with our worship of God, whether it be through song or through our lives, it has nothing to do with the style of music. It has nothing to do with personal character. It has nothing to do with opportunity. It has everything to do with, am I seeing God rightly? Because when you see God as he is, as the holy God of the universe, our responses are out of our control. When the angels appear to people in the Bible, they don't go, hmm, what should I do? Should I shake his hand, fist bump? Should I fall down like a dead person? No, they just fall down. And those are just angels. It actually says in the Bible that the, 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 the heavenly beings are nowhere near as holy as God. So much so that they are the almost the opposite. And if the holy angels, the angels that are in God's presence, can't be holy enough to even compare to God, where do we rate? Where are we on that scale? So we're going to look into the holiness of God. That repeated three times is called a trihagion, which means infinite and absolute. It's a, it's a way to word it, and it's both in the Old and the New Testament. God is holy, holy, holy. And our psalm repeats that. Three separate times it says that God is holy. So we're going to look at three things. God is holy in his greatness, God is holy in his goodness, and God is holy in his grace. Hey, it's three with the same letter. Go Baptists, right? Here's the first one. God is holy in his greatness. Looking at verses one through three. Starts off, the Lord reigns. Let the peoples tremble. He sits enthroned upon the cherubim. Let the earth quake. The Lord is great in Zion. He is exalted over all the peoples. Let them praise your great and awesome name. Holy is he. So what's interesting here is this this opening kind of stanza, if you will, this opening section are truths and responses. So look at verse one. The Lord reigns. That's a truth statement. It's the psalmist saying, this is a fact. And then he says, here's the response to it. Let the peoples tremble. He sits enthroned upon the cherubim. Let the earth quake. The Lord is great. He's exalted over all the peoples. And then verse 3 is another response. It's the whole response for this section. Let them praise your great and awesome and holy name. So the people tremble. It's an interesting phrase here. This trembling is joyful. It's awe. There's some motion here. For the non-believers, it's trembling in fear. For the believers, it's trembling in joy. Spurgeon writes, saints quiver with devout emotion. Sinners quiver with terror. This is not a light or trifling matter. To come into the presence of God is a weighty matter. God is sovereign. It means that God is, in fact, God. He is on the throne. 
The second part of verse 1, talking about being enthroned on the cherubim. So we need to understand the picture in the Bible. First of all, a cherubim is a type of angel. It's an angel that is a guard angel. So think of a bouncer angel, right? Maybe with less tattoos. It says in the Bible that they have flaming swords. I don't know if they have them all the time. We see the cherubim several times. We see when Adam and Eve sin in the garden, they get kicked out of the garden, and it says God put two cherubim at the entrance to keep them out. Later on, when the Ark of the Covenant is fashioned, you know, the Ark, the box that the Israelites carried around, the Ten Commandments, as well as some other things, um, Raiders of the Lost Ark, anyone, right? This box was put in the Holy of Holies, in the middle of the tabernacle or the temple. Once a year, the high priest would go in there and sacrifice, and he would sprinkle blood between the two cherubim that are on the top of the ark. So it would have been two angels with six wings on the top of the ark. Not only that, but on the, 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 the gate, the, the entrance into the Holy of Holies was this gigantic curtain as tall as this room, and on it were two angels with flaming swords, cherubim. When God's presence leaves the temple in Ezekiel 8, the cherubim lead the way. So these are, these are dramatic beings, and it says that God's presence would be most clearly felt between those two cherubim on the top of the ark. So this is what he's talking about here. He's saying, I want to focus your attention on what happens there. Every single year, the high priest would sacrifice for all the sins of the nation of Israel he would confess all of his sins and sacrifice for them, and he would take blood into the holiest place, the Holy of Holies, and he would sprinkle it in a pitch black room so that he wouldn't happen to see God's presence filled with smoke, and he would not touch the ark, he wouldn't look on it, he would sprinkle blood on it, and then he would back out. So pure was God's presence in that place that if he walked in there with a single sin that he had not confessed, he would fall over dead because God's holiness is so pure and so righteous, even a drop of sin will be destroyed in his presence, which is phenomenal to think about. I don't know how many times that actually happened that the high priest fell over dead, but they were worried enough about it that they attached a rope to him and they put a bell on the edge of his his robe. So if the bell stopped ringing, we had to pull him out. So this is the way it was in the Old Testament, and this is the way it was in this time of this psalm, but it's not the way we do it. Praise be to God. Hebrews 9 talks about how Jesus has entered in once and for all. And the picture is, is his blood is the one that has been sprinkled and is now accepted so that we can have a relationship with God. But we'll get to that in this psalm. So this is a joyful psalm, but it's not a frothy, light kind of joy. There's some weight to it. We have to catch what is said here. The Lord reigns, the people shake with fear. He sits enthroned, and the earth itself shakes in fear. And then look at verse 3. Let them praise your great and awesome name. Well, that word awesome has kind of been ruined for us. I blame the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Because they would always be like, awesome, dude, you know, let's get a pizza. That's not what this word means here. And I kind of wish the ESV would pull it out of there. Because when we look at awesome, it's a positive adjective. You look awesome today, right? 
That, that's a positive thing. What this means here is utterly terrifying, as in awe-inspiring. So this is saying, let them praise your great and terrifying name. Terrifying, really? Fear, really? Is, are we to have fear of God if we know him as our God? Philippians 2.12 talks about working out your salvation with fear and trembling. 1 John 4.18 says there's no fear in love, because perfect love casts out fear. So this is not fear based on punishment. I think a better word here for it would be awe or respect. Remember in the New Testament when a Gentile would become a believer, they would call them God-fearers. Not as in, I fear that God's going to punish me for my sins, but that they had an awe and a respect for God. So the idea here is that you're saying, I'm not God. I, it's not, I, I can't be God. It's kind of a continuum, if you will. You know, you think about a lion. I love the line from The Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe. When the, the, the children ask, is he a tame lion about Aslan, the Jesus figure in the book? And they say, he's not a tame lion, but he's a good one. And I love that. I love that that's the way it works. What, is it, what are they saying? What they're saying is, is if he decides to eat you, he's going to eat you. But praise be to God that he is a good lion and he's not going to eat you. I mean, isn't that part of the reason why we kind of look at those videos of people petting wild animals and we're kind of like waiting for that thing to turn around and maul them, as disturbing as that is? But that's the thing, is this God we have is not a tame God. He is not a God that we can say, I have him right over here, I put him neatly in this box, this is who he is. We are supposed to have a healthy respect. David Wells, a philosopher, has this little bit longer quote, but it's really good. We have turned, God, turned to a God we can use rather than a God we must obey. We have turned to a God who will fulfill all of our needs rather than a God before whom we must surrender all our rights. God is for us and for our satisfaction. Not because we've learned this through Jesus, but we've learned this through the marketplace. In the marketplace, everything is for us, for our pleasure, our satisfaction, and we've come to assume that in the church as well. So we transform God, the God of mercy into a God who is at our mercy. And this is what we do with God. We don't want God to be holy and be other. We want God to be manageable. We want God to be something we can control. And so this is what the psalmist is pointing out here in this first section, that the gulf is getting wider and wider between us and him. One, we see how unholy we are, and we see how holy he is. If left to our own devices, we're on the way to hell. One of the things that people will say to us who know Christ We'll say, how can a loving God send someone to hell? And I think that's the wrong question. And I'll give you an answer to it here in a minute. But I think we need to think about something else, is what does God have to do to send someone to hell? He has to do nothing. Nothing. Zilch. Every single one of us is deserving of hell. Now you may be like, well, I'm a really moral person. I've, I've, I've kept all of the big ten, right? I've not broken the Ten Commandments. It doesn't matter because you have Adam's sin on you and there are plenty of other sins that you just aren't aware that you've done or that you've said, that's not that bad. It's not as bad as Hitler, so therefore 
It's not that bad. See, the thing is, one single drop of pollution, just like with that high priest, is enough to send you to hell. See, all God has to do to send everybody to hell is do nothing. All he has to do is sit back and go, eh, okay, you guys want to sin? Go for it. You're going to hell. Praise be to God, we do not have a God like that who sits back and washes his hands. Instead, he says, I'm going to get down in the muck and I'm going to take care of it. So this creates a problem. We've sinned. God is holy. How do we bridge that gap? All we want to do is run away from him as fast as possible, partially because we think we know better and partially because his holiness is so amazing that we can't stand it. And so our world is in love with unholy. God cannot be in the presence of a single sin. God's holiness becomes a curse for us if we are not holy as well. So before the foundation of the world, he had a plan. God didn't have a plan B. This was plan A right from the start. His plan was to showcase his goodness in a people. So his greatness is so great that there's this gap between us. And now he's going to showcase to us how good he is. So the second thing we see is God is holy in his goodness. Verses 4 and 5. The king in his might loves justice. You have established equity. You have executed justice and righteousness in Jacob. Exalt the Lord our God. Worship at his footstool. Holy is he. Again, we see this truth and response. Verse 4, the king, his might, loves justice, equity, justice, and righteousness. And then verse 5, here's the response to it. Exalt and worship him. This word means to kneel or bow down before. The king in his might loves justice. This holiness See, the thing, holiness was on display. What, what God did was he said, I'm going to make myself clearly seen. And the way I'm going to do that is I'm going to take this really small group of people that just so happened where I've positioned them right in the middle of the world, and everybody's got to travel through this land called the promised land, Canaan, Israel. I'm going to put them right there, and then I'm going to pour into them who I am, and I'm going to bless them. I'm going to show them how good I am, so that way the world will know that I am God. If you think about this, the Israelites understood holy way better than we do. It was not an uncommon thing for them. Their city is built around the holiest place in all of the Bible. Not holy because of where it is, but because of who was there. Jerusalem, the holy city. Zion is the name of the, the hill that is adjacent to it. But Jerusalem, what's in the center of Jerusalem? It's the temple. Everything in this city is focused around the temple. From the horns in the morning saying, it's time to get up, we're going to do our first sacrifice, to the horn in the evening, to the midday horn, to the constant sacrifices, the blood flowing out of the temple into the Kidron Valley, it was evident. The temple was the center. Yesterday, my family, we were floating down the Clackamas, and at one point, we came around a corner, and all of a sudden, there's Mount Hood behind us. And it was beautiful, and it, it, you, you do that here in Oregon, right? You come around a corner, and you're like, oh, yeah, that's why we live here. I can see that five days a year, right? 
That's kind of like it probably is in Dubai, right? The Burj is kind of here and there. But here in, the t- in Israel, the temple not only was the thing that you could catch a look at because it was the tallest structure, covered in gold, beautiful smoke, smells, sounds, music, but it ran the entire city. And this was something that they understood. Not only that, but the Israelites understood the layout of the temple. They would have been taught from a very early age, no, no, you can't go in there yet. You're not of age. No, no, you can't go in there. You're not a priest. No, no, you can't go in there. You're not the high priest. There was always this separation from God. God meets his people there, but not all the people can get access to God. It says his footstool is there, his footstool, worship at his footstool. Footstool is the low piece of furniture right before, and the Ark of the Covenant, this holy box that is just phenomenal, we can't even touch it, God rests his feet on it as if it was no big deal. God is holy, and God is there in the middle of the temple, but still not approachable. So he is making the world know that he is good, but we can't know him individually. So God is present, God is active, God is showing his goodness to the people. We see that through the name Jacob. Jacob is the father of the nation, and God works through these Israelites. What's interesting here, and it's kind of hidden, is that right at the beginning it says, the king. Remember when the Israelites, they wanted a king like all the other nations, which meant they wanted a man to stand in. And what does God say? God says, you already have a king. It's me. So God is this king of Israel. And so Israel is wanting something else, and they can't get it. And so we see God pouring out his goodness, his love in this kingdom that he's established. But yet it's still not enough. There still is a gap. There still is a gap between the average Israelite and the God of the universe. And that's not going to work for God. So the next thing we see is we see God in his holy grace. God's going to work through a mediator. God's going to work through another so that there is a bridge. Verse 6, Moses and Aaron are among his priests. Samuel also was among those who called on his name. They called to the Lord and he answered them. In the pillar of the cloud he spoke to them. They kept his testimonies and the statute that he gave them. The prayers of these men were, were, were heard. They were able to speak to God, and God responded in kind. Moses interceded for his people. God was like, I'm done with Israel. Moses goes, but wait, don't destroy them. Aaron saves the Israelites in Numbers 16. Samuel prays down God's judgment on the Philistines. It's interesting, that word priest there in Latin is the word pontifex, which means one who builds a bridge. Now, we don't believe that the priests actually build something. That's not what we believe. But this idea that there's a bridge needed between us and God. These men were flawed. Moses and Aaron and Samuel had some very major flaws that limited their ability to build the bridge. But they stood in the gap. They stood in the gap between God and the people kind of screening them, if you will, kind of keeping God's judgment at bay. And then through Jesus, we're going to see how this totally changes. Yes, they were normal men. Yes, they failed. But they did one thing right. They called on the name of the Lord. But 
They were flawed. They were men. They had mistakes. Look at verse 8. O Lord, our God. Now notice in verses 8 and 9, it's no longer God or the God. It's our God, right? This is saying he is ours. We are a part of him. We belong to him. O Lord, our God, you answered them. You were a forgiving God to them, but an avenger of their wrongdoings. Exalt the Lord, our God, and worship at his holy mountain, for the Lord, our God, is holy. So this reveals two things in verse 8. We see that God is forgiving, and we love that. Everybody everywhere wants the forgiveness of God. We all want that because we know how far we are from them. Whether we really admit it or not, everybody in the world knows we're far from God. The second part is the part we don't want. He is the avenger of wrongdoings. Now that sounds really kind of tame, kind of milk toast, right? It's kind of, eh. This actually, the word there means sinful deeds. And so what he's saying is, I am forgiving of you, but I'm going to punish your sinful deeds. So how is God able to do this? Because what is the punishment for sin? It's damnation. It's God's wrath. It's hell. But it says, I'm going to forgive you, but I'm going to punish your sins. How can you do both? You can't. Forgiveness either becomes something that it's like it really doesn't mean anything. I forgive you, but yeah, you're paying the full price. Or you say, I forgive you, and then your sins don't get punished, which means people get away with sins. So how do we rectify this? Spurgeon says it this way, God forgave the sinners, but he slew their sins. So to forgive sin, as at the same time to express adherence of it, is the glory of God, and it's best seen in the death of Jesus Christ. Now, Spurgeon's pretty great, but let's take the Bible's word for it. 2 Corinthians 5.21, For our sake, he, God, made Jesus to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Romans 3.26, It was to show his righteousness, God's righteousness at the present time, so that God might be the just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So how is it that we are able to have God forgive and destroy sin at the same time? And the answer is the God-man, Jesus Christ. The question is not, how could a loving God send people to hell? The question is, how could a just God allow any of us wretches into heaven? And the answer is, Jesus Christ. The big theological word for this is called double words, is double imputation, which means he takes all of our sin onto him, we get all of his righteousness. The great exchange, it's an exchange on our behalf. One author writes this, he does this exchange from the pillar of cloud and fire with the tabernacle beneath it. And in the tabernacle, there in the Holy of Holies, where the Ark of the Covenant sits, on top of the Ark are the two cherubim facing each other. Between them is the mercy seat where God dispenses his judgment. This is the place that the blood is put, the holiest place within the holiest place of all Israel. And that means that your forgiveness is not a matter of divine indulgence. God isn't going, ah, I'll just forgive it. No, your forgiveness, your new life, your cleansing is holy. Jesus' blood is poured out on the mercy seat so that our forgiveness is assured. It's because of Jesus' blood. 
When God looks at us, and you are in Christ, you are a follower of Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. When he looks at us, he no longer sees us. He no longer sees us and our sinfulness. He sees Christ in our place. This is how we have any option, any availability to speak to God. We have no standing to call out to God. Do you get that? We, we can't pray to God and say, in the name of John, answer these prayers. Please don't do that. But when we say, in the name of Jesus, what we're saying is, not because of me or anything I deserve, but because of him and all that he deserves, hear my prayer. Hear my prayer. God in his holiness, Jesus as the mediator, bridges the gap between us and them. Verse 9 is the final response. It restates the entire point of the psalm. It says, exalt the Lord our God. Lift up the Lord our God. Worship at his holy mountain, which means bow to your faces at his holy mountain. Lift him up for the Lord our God is holy. Jesus, his sacrifice has been accepted. His sacrifice is one that we can take as our own. We can say, Lord, see me in Jesus. Lord, take my sins, put them on Jesus, give me his righteousness, make a relationship with me. 1 Timothy 2.5 says, For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. And this is the best news ever. We don't need to go to somebody else. There's no temple. There's no hoping that we can figure out how God wants us to come to him. No, we go to Jesus. He is our go-between. He's our bridge. Philippians 2.9, Therefore God has highly exalted him, that's Jesus, and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. So today we are going to celebrate communion. What communion is, is it's a remembering of that act. It's a remembering of what Jesus did in our place. This is a, a gathering of those who know Jesus as their Lord and Savior. So it is completely open to everybody in this room if you've confessed Christ as your Lord and Savior. You don't go through a class, you don't go through a ritual, you don't go through some person putting a stamp on you. What you do is you go through Jesus Christ. And so today, if you have not gone through Jesus Christ as your Lord, as your Savior, to get to the Holy God, then this isn't for you, but it can be. All it takes is a surrendering of your life to him and asking him to be in charge. For those of us that know this, as we come forward, the last thing we should be doing is doing this in a trite way. The last thing we should do is come up here and go, well, it's just communion, it's just a piece of bread and some juice. No big deal. No, we are, we are in the presence of a holy God. We are remembering his holy and perfect sending of Jesus in our place. So we approach this in awe and in reverence. And one of the ways we do that is we make sure that we have nothing unconfessed in our lives. We have nothing in our lives that would disqualify us 
that we have to confess. Jesus died for all of them, but confess those sins to him. Go to him again and again. It's not a one and done thing with Jesus. It's a continuous going to him because I need more of him in my life every day. I need more of him. So what we're going to do here in a second is I'll have Taylor come on up and we're going to have a song going and you're welcome to come here to the front or the back there. Grab the communion and then we'll sit down together and we'll go do it together um, as a group. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you, Lord, that we get to celebrate this incredible act that your son did on our behalf. Lord, I pray that you would do a work in each of our hearts, that we would love you and know you more clearly from this time that we spent together. And now as we celebrate your son's death on our behalf, be pleased with our time. In your name, amen.